Welcome to Live from Plato's Cave. I am Mario Vrij. This is episode 37, Techniques and Time with Daniel Ross. On the 5th of August, our guest today will deliver this year's Bernard Stiegler Memorial Lecture. It's called Too Soon, Too Late, and it's not too late to sign up for this online event. It's free and the link is in the bio. I hope to see you there. In the introductions of all the episodes so far, I've said a lot about Plato's allegory of the cave. Whatever you think about the possibility of exiting the cave towards the eternal and natural world at the surface, there are two fundamental observations we can make about the prisoners in the cave. They live in an artificial environment, which means the human condition is a technical condition. And they live in time. To be means to be temporal. It means to have yesterday, today and tomorrow. But what is the relationship between these two observations about our life? It's clear that the technical condition is subject to change. What technology means? It changes all the time and it changes very rapidly in our age. But what else can we say about techniques and time? Well, this happens to be the title of what I regard as one of the most important philosophical works that was written during my lifetime, at least so far. I'm speaking for the second time with Daniel Ross, who is an expert on the philosophy of Bernard Stiegler and the translator of many of his books from French to English. We spoke before in episode 15 and I discussed Stiegler's work as well in episodes 10 and 11. Daniel Ross is the author of Violent Democracy and Psychopolitical Anaphylaxis, Steps Towards a Metacosmics. He's also the co-director with David Barrison of the feature documentary The Ister, which also features Stigler and which is how they met. Dan has published 11 volumes of translation of Stigler's work. And in this episode, our focal point is the fourth volume of Techniques and Time. It's not yet published for reasons we will discuss, but you can read Dan's summary of it through the link in the description. We begin with an introduction to the series Techniques and Time and its relationship to Heidegger's being in time. We then speak about the relationship between techniques and memory and the place of techniques and time for in the larger series. We discuss education as a fundamental trait of human existence and the meaning of locality or being there. Just before the younger generation barges in to disrupt the interview and technology almost fills us, we discuss the role of the university and academic freedom. All right, here we are again. We're going to do something a little bit strange because we're going to speak about a book that hasn't been published, that you've translated, but the translation is not in the public domain. You've written a summary of it and the summary uh, people can download, they can read it, but it's still quite complex. But you've also written an introduction to it, but it's it will be published soon, I think, right? Yes, yeah, soon is a relative concept, but <laughs> uh, I would guess the beginning of next year. Okay, great. The book I mentioned is Techniques and Time 4. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit difficult to think about how to introduce that, and we've did some We've done some previous episodes about that, but yeah, maybe just start with the title. Why did Stiegler call this 
series of works, techniques, and time? Okay, yes, that's a good question and a good place to start. Uh, well, we are beings who live in time, but what does it mean to live in time? Uh, we are beings who know that we that we live in time, and maybe that's even more important than just to say that we live in time. How do we know that we live in time? Well, uh, firstly, because we can see the the second hand of the clock ticking over, and so this gives us a sense that we are in time, uh, and we can we can think well. We don't need to have a clock to feel that we are in time. But are we so sure about that? Are we so sure that if we didn't have a clock of some kind or another, that we wouldn't, that we would still think that we live in time? Uh, and if we generalize from that question, we can ask, well, what is a clock? In its most abstract sense, a clock is something that shows us that we are in time. And we could say that every artifact that we produce shows us time. Uh, if we look at um, our phone and we see photos that are stored in that phone, then we see time. If we pick up the Bible, and we read what uh, was written there about Jesus Christ, then we have a, a sense of time. And if we pick up a stone tool that we find on the ground from a million years ago, then that is a clock. And so uh, what Stiegler wants to say is, that that we are beings in time, as Heidegger said about Dasein, is because uh, we have all of these clocks all around us. But these clocks are not just what Heidegger wanted to say that they were, which was just uh, mechanical calculators of time as opposed to the authentic time that Heidegger saw as something opposite to clock time, the sense of uh, catching up to a past that's already there before me and that I have to live and that opens up the sense of my mortality, of, of heading towards the future and uh, a future that I can know only in the mode of not knowing it, uh, especially the end. What, what Stiegler wants to say is that, well, why are we those kind of beings? We are those kind of beings because the clock is never just a clock. The clock is always what opens up uh, this access to the past and to the future, to the feeling of the future. And uh, 
And that if we take the clock as referring to any retention, any artifact that keeps the past in the present, then we can say that it's artifactuality, techniques, that opens up our being, temporal beings. So I think the title comes from there. And it kind of mimics being and time is and in this way is I guess a statement on being and time just by the title saying what matters is techniques uh, and time. Exactly, yes. Yeah. And that uh where what Heidegger wants to say is that what is forgotten in the history of philosophy is the question of being that he wants to ask. Stiegler wants to say, well, the way we should understand this history of being that Heidegger wants to describe in terms of a forgetting of being is really a history of the forgetting of techniques, that this is the real um, forgotten, repressed question in technical history and for a reason that we can understand because if we are beings in time because of techniques this is something that you can easily not know at a time when techniques changes very very slowly and when all of the main concepts of philosophy and ideas in philosophy arise at a time when there was not a sense of being historical creatures who who are existing in a changing time, then techniques seems like it's only a side issue, not the main question. And it becomes possible to make a distinction between uh, those things that are eternal and those things that change. Mm -hmm. But today, we can know that nothing uh, is eternal and everything is involved in a process of change. And we can know that, but we mostly try to think about it with concepts that come from the time when we made this opposition. And this causes a problem in our ability to really think about um, how to conceive ourselves at this time. Yeah, and just to give a sense of how fundamental Stigler's work is. So when you say nothing is internal, you're not just talking about like buildings and objects and societies and everything, but also extremely fundamental concepts like space and our understanding of time and all those kinds of things right the, the categories that we use to yeah be in the world in the first place to understand in the world and to relate to ourselves in the in the first place exactly that's right the history of metaphysics is what heidegger called it mm -hmm. yeah so one so <laughs> uh te techniques and time at least the, the the thing that i got from techniques and time that for me changed a lot because I was really into Heidegger at the time and I had read a lot of critiques of Heidegger as well but I thought okay you know everyone can add something but it wasn't really fundamental but Stiegler makes an extremely fundamental point about 
technology because Heidegger also writes about techniques, of course, but he, he sees it mainly as a danger, but at the same time as kind of a, a crisis in the sense that it's a danger, but it's also the way of revealing. Um, but still, it's kind of a barrier to our relationship, to our possibility of authenticity. Um, but Steeler says, yeah, but what Heidegger didn't see is that the, the only way that we can speak about the non-lived past in the first place is because of techniques. So it's the, uh, am I saying this correctly, more or less? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So we're fundamentally, fundamentally technical. <laughs> yes. And uh, as I think I said in the, in the previous episode, we are from the beginning because um, if we ask when do we start, when is the beginning of us, or to put it in uh, the, the terms of Georges Bataille, when do we find somebody in the past that we can recognize and say, yes, this is a being like us. Whatever time we put that, Whatever being we we identify, whether we whether it's Homo sapiens sapiens or some previous um, hominin, an ancestor of ours, that being is already technical, and that means that its organs, and in particular its brain, but not only its brain, its its hands and so on are already a product of a very, very slow co-evolution between tools and bodies and brains uh, to the point that uh, at a pace that's so slow that you can't identify um, what is the driver of the process. But in any case, uh, the outcome is that from the beginning we are already technical. From the moment we exist, we are already technical beings. I just started watching this show on Apple TV. It's called C. Have you heard of it by any chance? No. It's, I just had to because I was preparing for this conversation and I started watching it yesterday with my wife. It's about a post-apocalyptic world in which I guess climate crisis has destroyed civilization and there's some people left. It's probably hundreds of years in the future, but they've lost the ability to see. And even to speak of vision is heretic. So they don't even remember the possibility of vision. So the first thing that was interesting to me is that how they're, they, they, are, they still have a society and they move around in the world, but a lot of it is organized by touch. So they have a village, but there's like a, a thread hanging over you with some things hanging down and, and you feel you feel a lot. If you walk there, you feel you're on the right path because you walk there. They have a different technology and it's very much related to some, like an, an, a function or an organ, like vision. So this, the story begins, I just watched the first episode with some children that are born and they have the ability to see. And they discover, uh, so first of all, they their world is completely different and they discover a, a case with books so they can read because obviously there, there are books lying around from our civilization, only the people there cannot read them. 
yeah, I, it just made me think about, you know, we put the value on books, for instance, t- for transmitting knowledge. But yeah, books only make sense in this way because we can see. Yes. Well, when we talk about techniques for Stigler, uh, as we already said, it's about time. But what does that mean? It means that most importantly, it's a question of memory. All technology has a relationship to memory. What is memory? In the history of the universe, things unfold according to the laws of physics. And the laws of physics uh, have many different sides to them and there are many different laws. But when we observe the overall tendency, we see that there is this thing that's called the second law of thermodynamics, which means that the past tends to be erased over time. And this is a characteristic that is understood probabilistically, but when we're talking about such gigantic uh, uh, numbers of interactions of molecules and so on, then it's completely irreversible. And so um, from the moment that we understand this, we, we talk about the arrow of time as indicating that irreversibility. And it's not that uh, just when we made this discovery uh, after the invention of the steam engine that uh, we had, an, had a sense of that. We had a sense of it long before the second law of thermodynamics was formulated. Uh, the whole um, idea of ashes to ashes, dust to dust, is a kind of recognition of the second law of thermodynamics in other terms. Nevertheless, when it's formulated, it makes a difference. At some point, in one place that we know ever in the universe, uh, something happened that seems to go against that law. It can't go against it. It's not possible to go against it. Uh, But... In a local way, it is possible. In a in a temporally local way, that is for a, a finite amount of time, even though it's open-ended, and in a local space, it's possible for something to happen that we call life. And what is life? Life is something that seems to go against that law of thermodynamics because it keeps its properties over time instead of erasing them. And in keeping those properties, it complexifies instead of simplifying. This is already a kind of memory. And uh, at a certain point in that history, we have the evolution of the nervous system, which again is a way of keeping the past instead of erasing it. And in the the program that you're talking about, 
what they do is find an archive which itself is temporary and which can be forgotten and lost. But if it's not completely lost, then it can be rediscovered. And the, the significance of that, as Stiegler points out, is that those first two kinds of memories that I talked about, genetic memory and brain memory or nervous memory, they don't communicate with each other. The, the, the memory that is in the DNA molecule is transmitted from generation to generation and changes, but it doesn't change based on the experiences of the individual. On the other hand, the experiences of the individual are accumulated in that individual's life but are lost when that individual dies. On the other hand, when the individuals we're talking about are technical individuals like ourselves, then we can put the memories that we have, the lessons that we have learned, into an archive, which could be a cave painting, it could be a, a, a book, and so on. So on. Uh, and then we can transmit those lessons and accumulate them across the generations. And this is the difference that Technics makes. Um, and it already is to introduce the question of why Technics and Time 4 was uh, something that Stiegler felt he had to add to the other three volumes that he'd written. Because it wasn't planned in this way, right? He he kind of planned, uh, if I'm correct, seven volumes? The original plan was for six volumes. Six well, volumes? The original plan was the two volumes that were published. Oh, and yeah. those two volumes were really taken from his thesis. Uh, and then uh, in 2001, he published a third volume that he had not in initially planned to write either, I don't think. And that came really, I think, after a close reading of Kant mm -hmm. and of Heidegger reading Kant. Mm -hmm. And um, and at a certain point, it became a six-volume project and was that way for a long time, but with no appearance of the fourth, fifth or sixth volumes. And then in 2017, he, he circulated um, a file to some people, including me, which was a new fourth volume so that the other three volumes that, that were to come were pushed back to being fifth, sixth, and seventh volume. Yeah, this to me makes Stigler very interesting as a philosopher because he, as we discussed, his work is very fundamental, but then... Techniques in Time 4 starts with recent, it starts with 9-11, uh, it starts with the election of Trump, uh, it starts with the, the IPCC report, which is kind of ironic because it was, if he wrote it in 2017, there will be no final warning. <laughs> We've had a lot of final warnings, we're getting them every day. I mean, we're talking now, it was, um, uh, I think last week was the hottest week on, on record ever recorded speaking about recording, right? <laughs> um, in the Netherlands, we had the heaviest uh, summer storm ever recorded. 
there seems to be a lot of things happening in, in the Earth's biosphere at this moment. Um, and what, so what I'm, what can you say about the fact that if, if such an important philosopher who's doing such fundamental work is publishing a work which is directly responding to the crisis that we're in at the moment, uh, he you, last time you mentioned he even wrote a book about Greta Thunberg, which is you know it's no one can read it uh, except you. <laughs> and um, but so then we're talking about techniques in time four, and, and I think a lot of people are speaking about techniques in time one. I, Stiegler is quite well known at the at the moment, but this work and this work has been translated, but it's no one can read it. People can read your summary, but why can't we read? The book, whatever you can, yeah, say about that. When Bernard died, it was a complicated situation, and uh, the question of rights and of the of the future of the estate was complicated, and and these kinds of of bureaucratic things to do with inheritance and so on take a long time. Um, at the same time, uh, but there are other factors as well to do with the circumstances. But but in addition to that, it's not a published text in French either. So right. it's yeah. in fact it's not a finished text. No, it's not a complete book. Um, it's almost complete, I would say. Uh, it's ten chapters, and uh, I, for, I think it's. Uh, I forget how many thousand words. Um, a hundred thousand words or something, I think. Something like that, yeah. yes. And, and the the the, but the last chapter has a lot of uh, typos in it, and this is a feature of of the way that that Stiegler would write. That he would write very fast and make a lot of typos first, and then go back and fix them. So. For sure, even from that perspective, the, the last chapter was never finished. So the first question is why, if he if he circulated the manuscript in 2017, he himself didn't publish the book before he died in, in 2020. He had three years. So Yeah, and he planned also books after that, right? So yeah, many books, he yeah. also refers in Techniques in Time 4 uh, to Books that he will write afterwards, and, and in so, many of his books, he refers to many books. So uh, that it's means at, a feature at the, of his writing that, yeah, yeah. that he's got yeah. at least you know and a dozen or more than a dozen books that he's um, that he's announcing, but he doesn't he doesn't write all of them. And uh, but the difference is in this case he. He sent a manuscript, and so I think the fact that that he that he did that but he didn't publish it means that it wasn't finished. And in fact, he would say uh, in emails and and so on and in person that he he was going back to that text. So it's for sure not a final book. So its status is is um, is ambiguous in that sense but the problem is that it's not going to get any more final than what it is now and so uh, for me it was 
It was a, it was a book that should be readable by people, and that's the reason that I translated it. But it also, a final problem that it has is that it has many images that he's just uh, dragged off the internet and, you know, without permissions, et cetera, et cetera. And so, but the, but the images are important to that, to that book. And so it's, it's not clear what is possible or what is not possible. I think we just have to say maybe one day, uh, but at the moment, uh, if people want it, they got to come to me and if they want it in English and, and uh, uh, see if I give it to them. Yeah, and they can read your 10,000 word summary of it uh, as well. That's right. Too. And maybe, maybe it was just a tribute to Being and Time, which is also not a finished book, right? Yes, and <laughs> yeah, to tell you the truth, I also have files of some of the other volumes to mm. come later, but those were not written in 2017. Those were written much, much earlier yeah. and would undoubtedly have been rewritten a lot if he ever did publish them. Nevertheless, they exist. And, uh, you know, it's, it's his important book. So, yeah. uh, well, I'm very happy we can speak about it uh, now. <laughs> so, um how you described it before is that that um on earth life the only life that we know we exist in an extended critical situation so i i keep having this image of of a panda who needs to keep eating bamboo all day uh, or a cheetah who needs to hunt all day um so uh you have to take care of yourself, of your children, everything like that. You have to take care of your environment. Um, so we're, even without techniques, life is already in an extended critical situation, right? So what changes when techniques comes into the picture? Okay. Well, first we should say extended critical situation is a... a phrase that comes from Giuseppe Longo and the people that he wrote with or writes with. And um, this comes from, from his attempt to try, he's a scientist, to try to think about this question of uh, what Schrodinger called negative entropy and to ask how to conceive this because there's many ways that people have tried to understand this and there's all kinds of confusions and contradictions and uncertainties about this this notion everybody can can have a general idea that what life does is a kind of postponement of entropy if we see the flow of of the becoming of the universe as as entropy, then then um, life is like a, a counterflow, uh, an eddy in the river that that flows in the opposite direction until it's swept down river along with everything else eventually. But how should we conceive what's really going on here, and can we can really understand it scientifically? This is Longo's question, and. Um, one of the problems is that we use words like order and disorder, and then we can get into all kinds of uh, confusions 
because lots of things look like order or are order or what does order mean? It depends uh, on your perspective what order is. Yes, and uh, does it have a scientific meaning? Um, we're much better if we're not talking about order, but we're talking about organization. And what then does organization mean? It means the way in which the parts are related. And when Longo was trying to think about this question and how to study it scientifically, he thought about the idea that uh, you can count the complexity of an organism in some way. You can count it in terms of parts. And, and then if you can count it, you can start to mathematize it. So you can look at an organism and divide it into countable parts, how many organs it's got and things like that. Um, I'm simplifying what he did. But the point was to, to not to assume that it's mathematizable because that's the last thing that Longo wants to do, but to raise the question if we can find a way of counting in relation to organisms, even if it's quite an artificial way, in order to then say, yes, we can mathematize negative entropy in some way. Um, however, that wasn't enough. The situation is more complex than that uh, because we are not static. We are a process that's, that's always undergoing change and that doesn't just maintain an organi organization in a frozen state. That organization, is, as you say, is always in a constant state of crisis. And this is why he refers to the extended critical situation. To, uh, to go to your question about what difference it makes, um, for the panda or the cheetah, the programs that they follow in order to try to maintain that consistency of their organs as they fulfill the plan of their of their genes that program comes to them from their genes combined with the possibility that some lessons can be learned along the way there's a good uh, lot of bamboo over here, and uh, I can I can know this, I can know that. Danger is over there, prey is over there, whatever you know. Those sorts of lessons are learnable. But if, as I said before, the kind of beings that we are were technical from the outset, that what that means is that what we have to deal with is not just that the environment that we live in has um, accidental characteristics, uh, surprises, problems that, that come to us, heavy storms, all sorts of things that can happen that we have to be able to cope with through those genetic and, in and instinctual programs. In addition to that, and from the outset, we are the co-creators of our milieu, of our environment. And that means there's a new agent of instability in that environment. 
that new agent of instability is ourselves. And if we are that agent of instability, and if it's there from the outset, then for us, it was never enough to just follow genetic or instinctive programs. From the beginning of who we are, we always needed to uh, find other ways of taking care of those uh, inconstancies, infidelities, problems of the environment, which is why we have education. And what is education? Education is a way of transmitting programs of behaviour, which means how you make selections about what to do and of transforming those lessons by accumulating them, condensing them, and um, creating new lessons when those old lessons become obsolete, stale, and so on. So we are always uh, a kind of creature that uh, has to invent its way of living, which means it has to ask itself what it is to live, and which leads to many, many other questions. And that gives us ulcers. <laughs> Do you know this book, Why Zebras Don't Have Ulcers? It's, no. I, actually, I haven't read it, but just the title. I mean, I just have to think about, well, the zebra only has to take care of itself and its offspring. We have to take care of the entire world and the world we created, and we have to transmit that knowledge as well to our children. So that's very stressful. So that's why we get ulcers. Yes, but... but. <laughs> You know that quite uh, some years ago, the idea that ulcers are caused by stress was challenged by uh, an Australian scientist All who right. said that it was really um, uh, a particular bacteria and um, was criticised for it and invented a... A medication and did what some scientists have done but not very many um he made himself the first patient of right. this medication and cured his own ulcer uh in this way and so now we know that ulcers uh probably <laughs> have no connection with stress but it's beside beside the point. Right, yeah. So I worked in medical education for 13 years. I'm leaving now, but uh, that's one. Uh, I still didn't pick up any medical knowledge. Uh, <laughs> but they do speak in medical education. They speak a lot about lifelong, lifelong learning. So in the sense that when you become a, a, a professional, when you get your degree as a, as a doctor, that doesn't mean the learning stops, but you have to keep up with developments and everything like that. So I guess that's a pretty accurate description, right? Lifelong learning. We have to uh, keep taking care of uh, the system that, that we live in and, and the world that we create, the cities that we build. Yes, exactly. So, okay, but this is, this is pretty much the human condition. So that's already, it's, if this is a critical situation, if we are in a crisis, if in the sense that our life is a crisis because... We know that at one point we die and, and we have to kind of fend that off as long as possible. Um, but we are also in a crisis. We're in a, a polycrisis, people call it uh, uh, ecological crisis, biodiversity crisis, in, uh, climate crisis, all those crises. So Stiegler 
wrote this work in the beginning, he, he, he mentions the IPCC reports. So what is it then, according to Stiegler, that makes this crisis different than what we had before in, yeah, to such a degree that he needed to write a, an extra volume of techniques in time? Well, there are several things, but let's focus on probably the main one. To do that, I I need to tell another story. Uh, it might be a, a bit of a longer one, but I think it's worth telling. I said that uh, we were technical from the outset. Stiegler says this by saying that there, that there is a default of origin. The origin cannot be found. It's already there. It's already complicated at the beginning. But at the same time, he says that it's stretched across two moments. The moment when we begin to use techniques, which is, as I said, already a question of a new kind of memory, and the moment when we begin to use techniques in order to uh, in order to save our memory or in order to add to our memory and that begins for instance when we when we um, paint caves and and so on but the difference the distance in time between these two moments is huge it's much more than a million years ago when we first begin to shape stone tools, but it's only a matter of tens of thousands of years ago when we when we begin to create artifacts designed for the purposes of memory and dreaming. And yet this is, it's between these two that we become uh, noetic beings, thinking beings who not only think but know to take care of what they're doing uh, because to know is also a question of being able to conserve the lessons that you have gained. And you conserve them symbolically, you conserve them by deliberative memorial practices. And so this opens a history that Stiegler calls the history of grammatization. Grammatization means that you take something that was a temporal flow in time and you turn it into something that's uh, spatial and also where you break it into into parts that are analyzable and reproducible. And so obviously the invention of writing and then alphabetical writing and then the printing press were very important parts in this history of grammatization. Grammatization is a way of deliberately keeping memory in things that are not alive. In doing that, you uh, conserve them, and in conserving them, you make possible interpretation. What is interpretation? Interpretation is always a matter of going back 
to something that's being kept, something that's being retained, a retention, a memory, and making a new decision about it, a new a new decision about what it means, finding a new meaning in it, but where finding and deciding are very closely related things. And why do I say they're closely related? Because if if it doesn't always seem that the decision that an interpretation is a decision, nevertheless, an interpretation is never just an analysis. It's a step past an analysis to synthesize what you've read, for example, into uh, a projection of what it means. It's abductive, right? It's, but it's also a fiction. Yeah. So you create something. You create something new. Yes, you create something new, and uh, an analysis never is capable of making something new or making a decision. You can make a decision on the basis of an analysis, but not the analysis itself cannot. And yet, we need analysis. So, it's not only books and uh, writing and painting that are forms of grammatization. In the 19th century, a new kind of grammatization begins, the grammatization of gestures, of gestures that are equipped with tools, such as uh, weaving tools, and when we grammatize those gestures, we break them into their parts, we analyze them, and then we do something that had not existed before. We create a machine that can reproduce those gestures. This is the beginning of automation. A machine that can do what we previously could do and can do it without us. And in doing it without us, uh, it takes away the necessity of our interpretation. It becomes an automatic system. In taking away the necessity of our interpretation, it takes away or tends to take away the knowledge that we had uh, about how to use those tools and how to interpret what we do with those tools in order to do something new with those tools. In other words, it's a pharmacon in the sense that Socrates said that writing can be something that uh, uh, can aid in our memory or it can um, it can block our memory because it becomes a crutch that we rely on and then we forget how to remember. And this is true of knowledge in general. But Socrates was not writing in the age of machines. Marx was writing in the age of machines and Marx did say something about this question in the Grundrisse, in the what's called the Fragment on Machines, where he understood that uh, capitalism is a system that takes the knowledge that was in brains 
about how to use tools and programs it into the machines that he called uh, fixed capital. Fixed meaning that it's taken away from the living process of memories, memory and work. But again, that's not the end of the process. If we are creatures who have to take care of the inconstancies of our environment and take care of the inconstancies of the environment that we ourselves are responsible for, then that means that we have to be capable of making new interpretations, new discoveries, and so on. In other words, we have to always double up in our repetition of that original lack of origin. Uh, we need to invent new tools, and then we need to invent new ways of living with those tools, having practices with those tools, recording those practices, transmitting them, and so on. What continues after Marx is a process that leads through analog technologies like television and eventually to computers that in the end seems to take away all of that possibility of generating new interpretations. And for instance, uh, uh, even after Bernard, we see that this, after the death of, of Stiegler, we see the continuation of this process with something like ChatGPT, which sets off a new question for us because it is a new inconstancy in our milieu that seems to uh, take one step further the possibility that we will lose the ability to, to think for ourselves as we delegate it to a machine. And this is why schools and universities are asking themselves the, the question of what should our relationship to this new uh, accident that has befallen education B. And so what Stiegler is saying is, if this is a polycrisis in the sense that we live in a system that contains many systems and where systems are in relation to other systems and where all of these systems or many of these systems are reaching their limits at the same time because every system can only function within certain limits. The system of your organism can function within only certain limits, limits of temperature, limits of uh, fluid intake, energy intake, and so on. Many limits apply to that system, just like apply to a society or apply to um, a biosphere and the ecosystem, etc. They they have a tolerance, but that tolerance has a limit. And when those limits are breached, there's only two choices. Either the system transforms into another kind of system or it collapses. And it's not new for human systems to collapse. There's a book about it called Collapse. Uh, but uh, what's new is, first, that it's not local in the sense of 
only one part of the biosphere or the human uh, uh, world within that biosphere, but rather the whole of that biosphere with no outside. But in addition to that, what's different is that whether those previous collapses happened or not, whether there were transformations or collapses, there was still the capacity for trying to learn lessons and develop new interpretations and new kinds of knowledge and new kinds of program, new kinds of practices and new ways of taking care of those problems. Yeah, also because you can move somewhere else, right? I have to think about the, the Mayan society where, you know, they built this whole civilization that we can see the remains of. We don't know exactly how they live, but it looks like at one point their society collapsed. So let's say uh, they build, you can build this city, you can buy, build this country, this society, the society can collapse, uh, but then you can move somewhere else. So if you fail to take care of this environment you created, you always have the possibility to move somewhere else. But now we live in the entire world. So the entire world has become our technical uh, environment. And if that collapses, uh, we have a big problem. We cannot move somewhere else. Right. But but the but the, the second point that I want to make, and which I think is is Stiegler's real point, is that in all of those previous situations, um, it was not a question of uh, uh, an automation process that was taking over from our own ability to, to think and take care of problems that we face. And uh, whereas today, not just in the age of chat GPT, but for a long period in the history of industrialization, the, um, the effect of the way that we've used memory technologies has been to in some ways make possible a generation of new knowledge, but in a lot of ways to undermine that possibility and to reduce that knowledge to information, which is a grammatization of knowledge, reduce that knowledge to information and take it out of our hands and out of our brains in a way that cannot easily be put back into our brains. And so the, the, all of those crises that existed in previous situations are doubled when what's also in crisis is our ability to, to um, understand our situation, to interpret our situation, to take, to feel care about our situation to desire to to change our situation and to have the knowledge and the will to be able to do it. His, his point was that knowledge and will and desire have conditions. And those conditions are technical. And as technical, they are pharmacological. And we haven't dealt with, we've dealt 
at a at a scientific level with the causes of the climate crisis. But what we haven't dealt with and the crisis of biodiversity. The, and why does biodiversity matter? Not just because when uh, every time you lose a species, you end a uh, trajectory of uh, a particular kind of unfolding of that molecule of life that can never come back, but also because ecosystems depend on the relationship between species and the diversity of species and of the organs of those species in order for the for that ecosystem to maintain not stability but a metastability a, a crisis stability a stability that's unfolding so metastability means you can adapt to your it's more of an open system right you can adapt to changing cir yes. circumstances and yeah. It means it can look like stability for quite a long time, yeah. but there can be undercurrents of change that can that are then necessary if that that ecosystem, say, or any other system, is um, is entering into a crisis of its limits. That those undercurrents are also the resources by which, it, instead of collapsing, transformation becomes possible. Mm -hmm. What Stiegler wants to say is that for us, the diversity in question is not just the diversity of ecosystems. It's the diversity of the possibility of interpretation. And the diversity of the possibility of interpretation comes from um, the singularity of my retentions compared to your attentions, even though we aim to share many things in common, but the point is that you've lived through different experiences and read different books that, and watched different TV shows than I have. And therefore, when we, when we draw on uh, a common retentional past, we can find different interpretations from each other. This diversity, like the loss of biodiversity, is being lost in the noetic milieu that we create around ourselves with all of our retentional artifacts, all of our books, our movies, and so on. And, and if we lose that diversity, then again, we lose those undercurrents that mean that when we are, find ourselves in a serious crisis, it can turn out that something was building from long ago that just needed to be for the right conditions. And if we grab hold of it in the right way, then we will be able to transform into something new. But if all of our time is compressed into a very flat world and all of our singularity of existence tends to be standardized with each other, um, then our capacity to draw different interpretations from the past, not only different from the past, but different from each other, in order to then have a real argument with each other that then we can resolve into something, all of that is destroyed and we find ourselves in a desert with uh, no resources and then we have no choice but to collapse. Right, and um, it's also a crisis of the imagination because 
just like someone who grew up in a city never has been really to any nature cannot imagine an alternative to living in a city i guess one of the things that is eroded if our imagination possibility to imagine other alternatives other possible futures is also conditioned by the technical environment this technical environment also erodes this possibility of imagining different futures or at least if you imagine a different future it doesn't make any sense uh, to you or to, to the people around you yes and that's very true and that's what he argued in techniques in time three where um he wanted to have a critique of immanuel kant precisely on the grounds that kant thought that the um the schematisms of the imagination were just eternal and um it's strange that somebody like adorno who wants to have a Marxist critique of the culture industry relies on this idea that the the imagination is is has eternal conditions which is to say that it's natural whereas what Stiegler wants to show is that no all of our imagination is uh, a projection from out of those retentional accumulations that have a history and a history that's based on the changing kinds of retention that uh, that characterize human life in different times and different places uh, which is the history of grammatization uh, the history of grammatization then is not just the history of memory but of imagination and the possibility of projecting a future um and I, and that also means that when I say that, uh, for instance, automation destroys uh, the conditions of, or in the way that we've deployed it, destroys the conditions of education and therefore of knowledge and of will and desire and imagination, that doesn't mean that... Uh, Bef prior to that, education was just a natural process. Education always had technical conditions. And it also doesn't mean that education um, in, in the history of industrialization was always just a matter of producing uh, laborers and um creatures that or you know people who were were designed for production and nothing else the history of education is much more complicated than that and including the history of education in industrialization which after all is the only period when mass in the mass education becomes standard no is can you compare education so if if um uh like a micro level uh you're speaking about interpretation uh, there's always interpretation and interpretation always in involves creating something new creating new possibilities imagination uh is education can it become is it that on a larger scale like the the ability of uh new generations to interpret uh the world so we we transmit we we have 
So I always find this um, uh, schema by Gert Bista useful, where he says in education, you, you learn, you, you qualify. So qualification, you, you just have to learn how to master like technologies and, and ways of doing and being in the world. But you also transmit the socialization, so the habits and uh, the ways of doing and the kind of the orientation, also the moral values. And at the same time, you also have to be aware that uh, this is a new individual who will live in a world that you yourself as an educator cannot imagine and will not live to see. So you also have to pay attention to their ability to respond to challenges and assignments of a world that we don't know yet what those assignments are. Um, so, yeah. Right. And that's, that's uh, a new situation, really. I mean... Uh, new in a long time scale. If you were born in um, ancient Greece, you don't have to be educated for a changing world that you can't understand, blah, blah, blah. The world's not changing that fast. And when we say changing, what is the main way that we mean by changing? The speed of the change of the process of grammatization. So that in the past, say at the beginning of industrialization it's a change if uh say somebody's parents were educated uh, in the form of going to church to worship the book compared to their child who attends school learns to read properly uh and is in in Ducted into the world of books in general. It's a change. However, it's a change where there's still in common the a lot of characteristics of the grammatization process at that time. So you can you can still anticipate. So I even if I look at my own history, I was born in eighty two. So uh, around nineteen ninety, I graduated primary school. And there the PC was coming up. So the older generations didn't know a lot what that would look like, but they could say, well, it's, you know, it could be a good idea to go in the direction of IT. So there's still, I mean, you know, okay, the, in, in 10, 20 years, uh, our society is going to change, but we also kind of can imagine in which direction it will be. So maybe we can educate you in that direction. But now it's going so fast that we cannot even do that anymore. Yes. Definitely. Um, so then we have to ask. Okay, let's let's ask about education in a in a general way, and we can relate it to techniques in time four as well. In techniques in time four, you know, it's called the the about the what's it called? It's called the faculties and functions of noesis in the post truth age, right? And um when he says functions then you can have an idea that uh, it's a kind of functionalism that that knowledge truth desire will all these things are thought about in a kind of functional way in relation to a being that is not just a, a natural being but is already from the beginning as i said an artificial being but an artificial being that has functions and then you could think, well, 
education has functions. Education is a function. And you'll be right. Education has the function of conserving, transmitting, and making possible new lessons, etc., uh, etc. Et However, it depends on dysfunctions in order for new steps to be to be taken. And so in relation to this rapidly changing world, we could ask then, so is the problem that the dysfunctions are coming so fast that we don't know how to uh, adopt them, right? And there's something true about that. But there's also something true about the opposite, that we could say, well, what's being eliminated through this automation of everything is the possibility of knowing dysfunctions, that, that everything dysfunctional is erased from the outset because it's uh, uh, there's only one imperative that guides all of the implementation of all of these systems, and that is efficiency, and efficiency is the elimination of dysfunctions. So what then is education? For me, uh, there's one little text that Bernard of Bernard uh, speaking in a, a short interview, it's only like three pages long, that, that is the best distillation of these questions, um, even though they're very complicated questions, but of the heart of them and of the heart of them of what makes him different from other philosophers and many other people as well. When we say that we can think about, uh, that we need to raise children to be capable of um, relating to a, uh, a different world than we know. We mean that they need to be able to think for themselves and that uh, we can say that this means they have to be capable of autonomy. And we, when we say autonomy, we think it's the opposite of being automatic. You, if you're behaving automatically, you're not being autonomous. If you're being autonomous, you're not being automatic. However, this way of thinking leads to a fundamental mistake in the conception of education, especially today. In this interview, what Stiegler says is, think about life of all kinds. It's made up of automatisms. Life is automatism. While we're conducting this interview, this conversation, all kinds of automatic processes are happening constantly without our being aware of it. Our heart is pumping, our, our uh, breathing is is going on without a single conscious thought being needed to do it, and many other automatic processes, they, and including within individual cells and so on. Automatism is life. But what about exosomatic life? What about technical life? In technical life, too, we need 
automatisms. And we need to, to acquire automatisms that are not natural. Why? I said before that what interpretation is, is the ability to draw something new from retentions that you have in your brain or in a book or wherever. What makes you have that ability? What makes you have that ability to interpret retentions is the ability to pay attention to retentions. We do not naturally want to pay attention. To be able to pay attention is something that has to be cultivated. It's the first thing that we have to cultivate before we can lead to other kinds of education. To pay the ability to pay attention itself involves the cultivation of automatisms, the ability to sit still and so on. The ability, if you're learning the piano, to, to play, do your scales in an automatic way, that, but one that requires you paying attention to what you're doing to be able to learn that, to read the music. Um, So what Stiegler would say is, what does autonomy really mean? Autonomy really means the fact that by acquiring automatisms, you can then disautomatize in relation to those automatisms. So if I learn my mathematical tab times tables in primary school, it's an automatism and it's purely mechanical, a mechanical process of memorization. But with this automatism, I can free up thinking space to be able to think more complex mathematical things. Yeah. Are you, do you play an instrument? No, I don't. Bother. Okay. Well, this is, this is a lot of times musical teachers explain, you know, improvisation, for instance, jazz improvisation. So you need to practice those skills. You need to automatize everything in order yeah. for you to be able to improvise, to be free to play together with uh, other people and to create new music. Yes, and musicians and dancers uh, understand the fundamental significance of acquiring automatisms. Yeah, they're very boring. They, they practice the same thing every day over and over again uh, for many, right. many years. Uh, yeah. And what does that mean, too? It means that you, you have an authority that is telling you that you have to do that right. inside your mind, right? We call that authority the superego. If I don't practice, I'll feel, I'll feel guilty. You know, if I let one day go by, no, I have to, you know, I have to keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And so you internalize an authority. Yeah. 
But that means, sorry to interrupt you, uh, this, because I have to think about this book from Matthew Crawford, The World Beyond Your Head, where mm -hmm. he make, he refers to, he's, because we were speaking a little bit about Kant before, because Kant's idea of autonomy <laughs> is, is very different. It's, it has to do uh, with that. And, and in this book, he also makes an argument that you have to submit yourself to the authority, yeah, not just of an educator, but also of the of the world, of the instrument, of the world around right. you, yeah. Exactly. And yet, uh, I think that what's happened in education, at least in Australia, and I don't think it's only in Australia, is that the whole notion of acquiring automatisms, the whole notion of the necessity of cultivating the possibility of paying attention and the whole notion of internalizing an authority. Internalizing meaning it comes from outside and put it inside. It comes from an outside figure with whom you identify in some way, a parent, a teacher, etc., etc., and make that your authority, even if it's a very complicated issue. All of that tends to become weakened and eliminated in the name of an idea of um, moving beyond a kind of a oppression or repression that fails to notice that the problem that we have today is much more a question of regression than repression. And that means going backwards. And that means undoing that ability to um, internalize an authority, undoing the ability to acquire automatisms, and especially undoing the ability to pay attention. But if you don't pay attention, you can't do anything else. And, and to learn to pay attention, how do you learn to pay attention? You learn to pay attention if there is somebody who knows how to pay attention to you. And that doesn't mean hovering around or um, validating everything you say. Attention, Paying attention as a parent or a teacher too is a question of technique. Um, and that technique is a very complex interaction. And it's what Winnicott tried to describe in relation to transitional object, but I don't know if we want to describe that. But, but, but the main point is, on the one hand, Stiegler is definitely saying that what we need is to recognize the virtue of dysfunctions in order to be able to improvise together new solutions. But on the other hand, what he's also saying, and which differentiates him from many other people, I think, is that it's absolutely a lost cause if we don't remember that we have to uh, find ways of renewing our ability to cultivate attention in young people through cultivating attention cultivating the possibility of acquiring automatisms through acquiring automatisms and identifying 
acquiring the um, internalization of authority that tells us what we must do. And through that internalization of authority, opening up the possibility of rebelling against that authority and disautomatizing ourselves in order to, to really compose something new. But then we have a real big problem in education because what you're describing is asking a lot of the educators, uh, paying attention to uh, the student and, and uh, you know, also tuning into what uh, what gets their attention, what keeps them being motivated and keeping a balance between, you know, skilled practice, automation, automation. Um, but these educators, they're a product of, of our education system, which has eroded the attention. So before even uh, thinking about, because that's also one of the arguments BISTA makes, we're focusing only on the students. We're only focusing on learning, but we should be focusing on the educators. So uh, the, the educators need to cultivate their attention first of all, right? But this is, I mean, Maybe it's okay, comparable. The first educators are the parents. So what does yeah. what is the implication of that? You right, know? that's one of the images, right, in in Stigler's book, where um, uh, I don't remember the image correctly, but it's like the the parents are watching TV or something, and yeah. so the what the the parents are glued to the screen and they don't pay attention to their child, and the child is looking at the camera. Yeah. Yes, and uh, look. Uh, it's not at all a question of assigning blame. It's a question of understanding the unfolding of these processes and asking uh, through a critique of these processes what, which is a, of, the, of the crisis of these processes, how to undo that crisis for which we need reason. And that reason can't just come from the bottom end of the scale, from the parents and the teachers. They are the victims in this as well, which is what that, that, that drawing or that picture also means. It means that the parents are not taking their responsibility, but it also means that they are not responsible uh, completely for this for this situation and so Stiegler you know he wanted to have and he pushed hard to have uh, in France 500 PhDs over five years I think 500 PhDs about the relationship between um computer technology, uh, network technology, etc., and attention, education, uh, and so on. And he wanted other European countries to also have 500 PhDs devoted to this question mm -hmm. um, so that there could be 5,000 highly... Yeah. Uh, and, and they all have researchers on this question right uh, and they all have their own interpretation and uh, you get also there the diversity in uh, in approaches to the same problem right and the first thing is recognizing that this is an actual uh, significant problem yeah. that has to be turned into a question and and the 
the world that we live in is one in which everybody knows that it's a problem. Everybody knows that attention is an issue. Yeah. Everybody knows that uh, um, things that seemed possible a generation ago or two generations ago in terms of what children can be raised to not only do and know but care about seem impossible. Mm-hmm. And yet it doesn't doesn't really rise to the level of genuine political debate or genuine policy that tries to measure up to it. Of course, it's a complicated question, but... Because the society itself, yeah, that's again the, the, the issue that politics cannot pay attention. So, I'm, as you know, a lot busy with the climate crisis, but there's, you know, we, we all know the, know the movie, Don't Look Up. It's impossible to even discuss issues like that because of the lack of attention of politics, of the media, of everything um so okay i'm just going to try to combine some of the questions we discussed right to kind of also wrap up this part about education so uh one question i had is uh so we're in all these systems that uh, many of them are on the verge of collapse or maybe have already collapsed um but we're at a critical situation where we want uh transformation rather than collapse so what does this transformation look like and then we can narrow that to the question of education so one part of that transformation that we need has to do with education so then the question is what kind of education do we need and not just education for young people but also for professionals because uh, a lot of professions are changing as well so People need to re-educate themselves. They also need, everybody needs to educate themselves on climate and all those kind of issues. Um, and then the tension is that the education system we have right now is in a certain system that is also part of the problem. Um, so we want to educate uh, students to transform, to be able to do all, all those things. Also, uh, challenge the system, also have all those dysfunctions. But the education system now is focused on teaching them how to adapt to the world. But if the yeah, if the if we live in an um, insane society in a way, then it's not good to teach them to adapt to that insane society. But it also creates problems that we also see, for instance, with students occupying their universities because those universities have fossil fuel sponsorships, for instance. So, um, yeah, do you, is there anything, yeah, this is, these are a lot of questions, but what are some of the ways forward in education that we can use to address this? Uh, On the one hand, I agree with you that the the message of the world is that the only choice is to adapt, not to really um, transform, and that this is irrational because um, when a system is at its limits, you can't just keep adapting. Uh, 
and to create people who can only adapt is to doom that system. But when we say that we're trying to create people who are capable of transforming, the risk is that educators and theorists of education, specialists in education, turn that into something that is what I hate and is what I was trying to, to get at is we have to remember uh, what makes education possible and what makes autonomy possible and what makes disautomatization possible. Um, in other words, unless we first ask about the conditions of the creation of attention and so on, then then everything else will fail. And the conditions of attention are uh, about making, uh, they all definitely involve students, young students, learning to be passive in certain situations, learning to um, do what they're told, learning to um, memorize automatically, uh, learning to behave. Uh, and so what does that mean? You know, does it mean that teachers should be repressive? Well, what we're talking about is sublimation. In other words, the idea that all of those energies that we have in us when we're a kid can be directed in a in a way that uh, that as parents and educators we see needs to be a path that that energy is directed into and concentrated in um, in that direction. For that, you need to know how to have authority, right? and you need to you need to generate that authority uh the feeling of that authority in your in your child or your student it's not um oppression oppression is if you never acquire those abilities yeah you, need, so you need this oppression because you don't have authority if you have we all know these teachers no one even dares to do something because they have authority the, the repressive ones that send the students out of the class to the principal and everything. They're the ones that don't have authority. Right. So uh, it's, but we can't make a clear opposition either uh, between sublimation and repression. What we can say is there's no sublimation that doesn't have some element of repression in it. We can't completely separate those things. And I'll give you an example. I said I don't play a, a musical instrument, but I'm involved in a performing arts school, a dancing school. And the main teacher at that school is a great teacher of small children, a really great teacher. And she can teach students who are younger than primary school age to do things in that primary school teachers can't dream is possible to get them to do 
And what does that mean? It means that she knows how to um, make those students have the desire to do what she wants them to have the desire to, what she wants them to do, right? And a lot of it's mechanical, but uh, it's preparation too. And the first thing that she does for students that are like uh, three years old is they have a stretch class. Not the whole class, but they do a, some stretching. Now, they're not doing stretching properly. Their muscles are not really stretching. So why is she doing that stretching? She's doing it because she wants to establish that this is not the same as this place that you're in now is not the same as another place that you're in when you're at home. This is a different place. It has different characteristics, different rules of behavior, and and um, is a place where you can where you have to be calm and you have to pay attention. It's like a ritual. You make it significant. Yeah. You're here. You're not. You're not at home anymore. You're here. You're going to do something which may be exciting, maybe hard, maybe yeah. Yes, and that that is one tiny little example, right? But already you can tell that schools have abandoned that idea. It's too hard, right? It's too hard. And to... it takes time and they want to be efficient. So why spend 20 minutes stretching? Because you need that time to teach them right. blah, blah, blah. <laughs> right. But if it's you wasted don't time. start <laughs> in, in the first year of primary school, you will never do it. It's yeah. like uh, letting a kid um, grow up in a, a forest by wolves. Okay. Yeah. If you get get the kid back from the wolves and you really <laughs> work and work and work, you can maybe produce uh, some socialization. I had one uh, one one uh, experience where I was teaching uh, students in primary school philosophy. So I would go to the grades like two, three, four, five, six, just one by one. And I had like one hour with each of them. And in some classes, we were, you know, experimenting with what is time. So I would set the timer for one minute. First, they would talk for one minute to their friend. Then they would listen to music and uh, look at the painting or something like that for one minute. And then uh, be silent for one minute. And of course, the question is like, which is longer? And they wouldn't believe me that it was really one minute and everything like that. But I, when I came back the next time, they started asking me, oh, can we do one minute of silence again? So it's, I, I didn't even call it meditation or something like that, but they were craving so much, just one minute, not doing anything. <laughs> yes, things are much more possible than what uh, people recognize as possible. But what makes something possible or not is technique. And So I uh, had a timer there. <laughs> That's yeah, the well, technique, right? You need, yeah. you need different things, and uh, in this, in the example I gave, the only instrument was a floor. Yeah, that's the only instrument you need if you know what to do with that floor. Um, for and yet, you know, the the aim is not to produce robots obviously the aim is to make possible disautomatization at when that is when 
that is uh, appropriate. And it also doesn't mean that the aim is to take away all technical relationships, as we just said. It involves a floor or, or um, a clock or whatever. But it does mean that we have to use judgments, which means we have to interpret situations in order to be able to make decisions. And, and in the case of education today, many of those judgments that we're making are completely wrong. So, for instance, Stigler, who says very clearly there is no future with uh, that is not industrial for us, uh, that we are technical beings, we cannot live without techniques, etc., etc., also says for young children, screens are only poison. That's what he says. Yes. No screens in school. Yeah. Yes. Maybe he doesn't say that for all the way up to the end of uh, secondary education. Yeah. But let's say primary education. I would say that uh, probably for up until that time, or I don't know. I don't want to say exactly what year, but yeah. but uh, when you're developing a lot. Yes. The and, to the basic and that functions. In general, yeah. Uh, there may be positive ways of using this pharmacon in education, but 99% of the time, the way that we use this pharmacon is destructive of education. And his, and he was saying that a lot, lot before he was writing Techniques in Time 4, in taking care of uh, youth and the generations, as it's called in English, he lays out that... What's what we're in is a war, and that war is between what he calls programming institutions, which is what a school is. It's an institution for programming your behavior so that you can then um, do many things with those programs. And programming industries, which is TV, etc., Instagram, whatever. Uh, and that one of the main problems in this war is that one of the sides in this war has failed to understand that they're in a war. And so they just take all of the weapons that are being used against them and let them in into the fortress like a Trojan horse. And no matter how many years go on, with the the consequences of this being clear to see, somehow what he already was saying then uh, continues to be the case today. Of course, there are counter movements, but the the pressure and the thinking in education seems very much more to be constantly asserting the need to introduce as early as possible so as to learn to live with and how to blah, blah, blah. It's all garbage. If you haven't established the conditions of knowing and learning, then you're just destroying it uh, and you're destroying it in a way that means that that later on the window will have closed. Yeah, because they don't have um, the, the imagination gets lost, right? The, the being able to imagine to do anything other than sitting behind the 
screen. I mean, just going out in the forest for a walk. That that's so boring. Why you know you want to look your YouTube or something? Yeah. Well, you know, it used to be that uh, teachers and university professors would complain that it was they couldn't anymore. It used to be that people would read novels and books, um, but then they started to complain that you can't get them to read a novel or a book. They'll just watch the movie. They won't read the whole book. Reading's going, reading's going out the window. But that's not what they complain about now. Now they complain if you ask if you ask students at a university undergraduate course to watch a movie. They say they can't watch a movie. They can't sit down and watch a whole movie. They'll just watch YouTube clips of the movie. <laughs> or they watch it at double speed. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and so, you know, like I said, yeah. everybody knows. Yeah. Yeah. And on the one hand, how you describe this, it seems very much related to the previous episode of this podcast where we discussed the natural contract by Michel Serre and Sarah is also saying being there is getting rarer uh, and we're in a crisis there. But he describes, you're also talking about a war, but of course, Sarah describes this as a, a war with nature. Um, we don't need to go, get into Sarah, but I'm just interested in uh, this notion of being there and, and which of course relates to Heidegger as well. Dasein means literally their being the being we are the being that is there and an example of uh stretching <laughs> uh, at the beginning of a class is i think one way of being there so uh attention uh being having attention for where you are is one way of being there we all know people you're having a conversation with someone you're sitting at the restaurant and they're looking at their phone they're not there so um yeah, the question is how how does Stiegler understand this being there in this locality? Um, first, uh, I want to say, because I just said about the reading and um, movies and YouTube clips, we have to think about ourselves here because we are having a conversation about a book. And, okay, We've got, we've got a good excuse because nobody can read the book. Yeah. But when you're you can doing, say whatever we want. <laughs> we we have to we have to acknowledge as well that um, the point of a podcast cannot be as a substitute for reading the book. Yeah. People have to go and read the books. Uh, if if you let the podcast be a sub a substitute then you've you're already losing that war again so it's so, like watching the movie uh, uh yes. you know you get this a little, little bit of a taste of it four. yeah but it's uh it's i mean it's mostly and that's also why i'm doing it because maybe it's like trying to convince people to in, it doesn't have to be techniques in time for but oh, it's no, an investment it's an Any investment of books. right and it's it really takes your attention because you you cannot, some philosophers are more like, let's say, poetic or something. You can read it kind of while thinking about other things as well. I think Stiegler, really, you have to pay attention. You have to invest in it. But yeah, you have, to, I mean, I think we have to because we get a lot from that. 
Yes. Well, what he would say is, what do we need in this war? If the if the war that he's describing is is what we face, um, what do we need in this war? And the answer is, we need concepts. And how do you get concepts? You get them from reading books and thinking about them. Um, not just his books, obviously, but <laughs> but for me, it's important that it's his books. So, yeah. um, uh, to go to your question about the there, because that is the main issue in Techniques of Time 4. For Heidegger, the there is already there. It's already there, but we, it's already there in um, the life that we are born into, that comes before us, that is our, the language we speak, the culture that we're part of, the family background that we're born into, etc., uh, etc. Et where, but where we, it's waiting for us when we're born. And so we're always catching up to that already there, that that's waiting for us and that we then have to be, we have to be, uh, we have to adopt that already there so that we can be, right? And so we hit the ground for running and we can never, we have to catch up, but life is also moving on. So we can yes. never fully catch up because we're always in the motion already. And so our, our, we are future beings, but our future is always also about uh, catching up to the past that we haven't got to yet. And, and it's a complicated idea, but, but his, his idea of what it means to be mortal is like this. Um, what Stiegler wants to say is that this already there is made of memory technologies. And there is no there that is not what he would call tertiary retentional, uh, which means um, if I don't if I don't talk about Husserl for a few minutes, then uh, we can say that tertiary retentional means the the memories that are contained in artifacts that are already there that we adopt in the in not just in the books that we read, but in the calendars that we adopt, in the maps that we that we adopt, everything that uh, gives our space and our time a uh, symbolic signification and meaning that we can draw from that signification and so on and so forth. Um, like we said in the beginning, uh, techniques is, all, is all also our only possibility of relating to the past. Yes. And in Techniques in Time 4, he talks about this thing, the idiotext. I won't talk about it too much here, but the idiot text was an idea that came from his thesis, and which would have been the main topic of the last volume, the final volume of Technics and Time, if he'd written it. But he did write about it in other texts, and it was a way of trying to think about spirals of processes. And if you think about what we said about entropy and negative entropy as a kind of counter spiral in the river, then this is what 
an idiot text means. It means a, a spiral of of life and a spiral of technical life for the exosomatic beings that we are. And so if we ask um, how exactly is it that by just going back to uh, some retentions that we have in this book or whatever, that we can draw new interpretations. How exactly does that happen? Then he would say it's something like this. Uh, let's take language as an example, even though it's not only about language at all. Language is only the all of the uses of language that we make and the way that you use English and the way that I use English is not exactly the same for many reasons. One, that you're not a native speaker of English. No. But, <laughs> but, you know, for somebody like me, it's always incredible to think about people in countries like the Netherlands uh, where... The, you you cannot tell that people are not really native speakers, but nevertheless, uh, the the there is a difference in how you speak and how I speak, and and what that means is la the language, the English language itself, does not exist. It's just made out of all of this talking, and we can we can formalize. Um, what we think is the English language. For instance, there's uh, that book, Fowler's Modern English Usage, which tries to say this is correct usage. But however formalised and institutionalised that is, it's just one way of using English out of many, many ways. In other words, the language itself is a milieu that's much bigger than us and which is spiralling around, composed of all of our uses. At the same time, that English language is also inside me. It's something smaller than me as well. And all of the ways that I use it in my own particular way spiral around inside me. What he wants to say is, I am one of these spirals. There are spirals that are bigger than me, like language. And then there is the fact that I don't actually exist either. Inside me, there's a whole lot of processes going on that are all spiraling around too. And I, the I that I think I am, is only a kind of a, a projection of a unification of all of those internal spirals that makes it possible for me to believe that I am an I. What happens when I interpret? What happens when I interpret is that uh, there is a meeting of spirals of different scales. And so I read a book. This is an, an occasion of such a meeting between the spiral of the language that the book is written in 
the spiral of my accumulated understanding of uh, the language of that book, which is my own private understanding of that, and my understanding of who I am, the characters that make up my personality and how they relate to the characters in the book and so on, that all of this is a meeting of two projections. The proje what's being projected by the author through the through the tertiary retentions that are that compose the book and what is being projected from my um through from my expectations of that book that are either met or not met in the encounter with it and that it's this is a re this occasion is a, a meeting point of two spirals that means that there's a rearrangement of the retentions that I have inside myself. And this rearrangement can sometimes be stereotypical. It just this book is very much just a formula novel and it just reinforces what I already understood. Every Agatha Christie book is the same, blah, blah, blah. Or no, there's something different that I wasn't quite expecting in this particular Agatha Christie book. And so then there's some kind of rearrangement of what I think is going on in Agatha Christie and a new interpretation becomes possible. Uh, what this is saying is that there's a meeting of two kinds of already theirs going on in this situation. There is the already there that I have lived. And that's Heidegger is talking about. Uh, the already there of my accumulation of my past, that is, that is my singular psychic individuation process, to put it in Simon Don's terms. Including like and your childhood and, and your relationship yes. with your parents and all that stuff, yeah. Yes. And my acquisition of language up till now and yeah. so on. And then there's already there that I have not lived and which is collective and which Simondon called trans-individuation and which is itself a process, which is to say a spiral. And so um, all of the books that are already there uh, and that all of the textbooks that are read by a class together, etc., etc., is the spiral of the collective trans-individuation of retentions that we metastabilize as shared meanings and understandings. And what's occurring on the occasion of an encounter with a tertiary retention, with a book or a movie or whatever, a podcast, it, what's occurring is a meeting between the already there that is my already there and the already there, of which is what Simon Don will call the pre-individual already there, and the already there of trans-individuation. So, in both of, in, in that meeting, the productivity of that meeting and its ability to generate something to affect me in order to make possible a movement inside me, whether it's an emotion or a, a new thought is the diversity of the processes within me 
that arrange my retentions and protensions. Protensions are my expectations and my relation to the future. And the diversity of the trans-individuation process. And where that diversity is something that is not shallow, but deep and wide. And the, so the problem, if we have a problem of the there not being there today, then it's because the this depth and breadth of the already there is being reduced to something shallow and narrow. And um, it's important to say then that it's not that before the there was there. In a way, the already there is never yet there. Why is it important to say that? I said at the beginning that we come out of a default of origin. That means that the origin was not there yet. Right? And it's because it's not there yet that it keeps re repeating itself. We keep finding ourselves in recurrences of this or of this origin. The past keeps coming back. The ghosts of the past keep coming back and recurring, and um, so that sounds like a trauma. How you describe that? Yes, uh, but it's a trauma that is also our potential. Yeah, trauma is what we have to keep finding new ways to interpret and adopt. So, if you say, "Well, why do we have to interpret? Why do we have to adopt?" Precisely for that reason, because the the there was never there yet. It was always that we had to project a there yet to come that we believed in that we're on the way towards. And so even if, for instance, at the at the level of um, what is a nation, or let's say when is a nation, think about um, after the collapse of the Kaiser that led to the Weimar Republic, the question would be what will Germany be? Mm. And the communists declared this is the starting point of the new Germany. And then the social democrats declared, no, we are making the proclamation now. So who was right? Well, you couldn't know who was right then. When could you know who was right? Could you say, okay, well, after five years, we know it, we know after, after World War I, so, oh, well, you know, it's uh, we're up to 1920. It's the Weimar Republic. It's social democrats. The, the communists were wrong. But is it yet? Is it is it enough time that the there is there, that it's really the Weimar Republic? Or you could say, well, when 1933 comes along, you can you could see that this Weimar Republic that seemed metastable, it never really existed at all. It was just a kind of... Uh, uh, passing phenomenon because the real movement was always going, getting, just preparing itself and um, and the there that seemed to be there didn't 
wasn't really there at all because another there was on its way and it came in 1933. Or you can then say, well, that's blah, blah, blah. In other words, the there is always on its way to being there. It's open. And that's it's why you have to yeah. project it. Yeah, it's right. never finished and it also requires care because it's not right. just a place, and it's belief. there, it's stable and belief, yeah. And the problem, so what Stiegler is saying is if if the problem is that the there is no longer there and the same way that the epoch is no longer an epoch, that we no longer can grab hold of it, say our time is like this yeah. and know what to do orient ourselves in relation to this there, orient ourselves in relation to this epoch, if we can no longer do that, it's not because it was there before and now it's gone. It's because it was not there before, but we were capable of projecting that it that it was there. And now we've lost the ability to project it. Can I, tr I try to translate this to uh, how I experienced my situation? Because... For me, I never f fully felt my there is the Netherlands, the country, the nation. I always felt more my there is, yeah, uh, I'm an earthling. <laughs> maybe I, I would say, okay, maybe if I have to say one identity, I'm maybe European. But beyond that, I'm, I'm an earthling, not because I don't recognize how much being in the Netherlands has formed me, but because that's how, that's how I feel. Um, and, Part of the reason behind the climate crisis is something that Carl Sagan and others already said in the 80s, is that uh, we need a collective uh, nations working together, realizing we're in a shared, on a shared planet, a shared problem. So I feel I'm in between somewhere like, okay, I don't feel at home. I don't feel the Netherlands is my home. But collectively, I also recognize that we, what we need also, like in medicine, they're talking about planetary health and everything. Everything we do now has to relate to the there of the, the planet as a whole. And it's it's somewhere in between. And I think it's not just a like just like a nostalgic feeling or a thing of identity, but very concretely, if we don't are if we are not there on the planet as a whole. Uh, we're not going, well, there's not going to be a home for us pretty soon because it is related to care. So we don't take care of the planet as a whole. We only take care of, for instance, the discussions that are going on now is that, no, we cannot do uh, what science tells us to do, uh, uh, you know, or that we committed to in the Paris Agreement because the Dutch economy will collapse or because just in the Netherlands are... Prime Minister resigned after 13 years. So everything is about that. And all the media appearances about the hottest day ever recorded and the hottest week ever recorded. And the, all that all that's out of the news. We're not paying attention to it anymore because it's all about our country and our government and everything like that. And for people like me, that's very, um, yeah, almost, I feel like... Uh, almost traumatic in the sense that many people are now relating to the idea that, well, the planet as a whole is in a big crisis, but we're only focused on this local situation. So just to finish this, this thought as one example, 
the hottest day, there's all these news. I'm sure you get them too in Australia, the, the hottest day ever recorded, all that stuff. So we have a Dutch news organization, the, the NOS, and they have a pattern where when they put that, uh, they have to decide on an image, right? What's the primary image we're going to give to this uh, message because it's quite an abstract message. So what they do over and over again is uh, they have uh, images of playing children in or people on the beach enjoying the sunshine or children playing uh, in the fountains, in the, in the water. <laughs> and uh, a lot of people are upset about this, but other people don't understand why. It's because I also have relationship with people in Asia, like where my extended family, someone died because of all the heat there. There's people in India right now that are in wet bulb temperatures, which means that they cannot give off heat to the their environment and they're basically boiling inside. So for me, yeah, there's this, I don't know, there's, I have this feeling it's somewhere in between there of, of just only care because if you're there, you only care about this situation there. So, yeah. Um, can you make any sense of that? <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, well, I'll try. Uh, we have to ask the other side as well, I think, um, because it's a question. Can you constitute a locality are there at the scale of the biosphere from out of the process that we have of uh, localities in this world that we're in today, composed of countries. If so, if we tried to do that, what would it mean? In other words, is the idea of the country or the nation obsolete and it's time to get to uh, invent a new internationalism that's that's really trying to create a, an idea, which is what you're really saying, of planetary citizenship, where a citizen is not just an inhabitant but a the creation yeah. of, a, of a person capable of taking care because they see a duty and a responsibility and so on, an obligation. Um, what does that mean about smaller scales of locality? Should we, should we be against maintaining smaller scales of locality and instead dissolve them into this uh, planetary scale citizenship. And I think Stiegler would say definitely not, that the age of nations is not over in that sense. Um, even if he could absolutely recognise the problems that you're pointing to and the necessity of something like a sense of of planetary belonging and the reason it, that he would say no is because the those nations too all of those nations are themselves 
spirals. They're themselves collective individuation processes, a trans-individuation of, of Dutch education, Dutch culture, Dutch history, that means that you have the possibility of giving a, uh, uh, another interpretation than somebody else, than somebody from India. That doesn't mean that uh, we shouldn't compose those interpretations. Of course, that's the whole question. But for Stiegler, uh, that's the, the, the one of the problems is the distribution of ideas between that kind of global globalist perspective, as people will say, or what is the counterpart that is generated as a consequence, which is an intensification of nationalism, etc., etc., and all of and xenophobia and all of those reactive phenomena that that we can definitely see arising today. Um, instead, he turned to the anthropologist Marcel Mauss, who at that time, at the end of, of the First World War and after that, tried to conceive another path beyond the opposition of internationalism and nationalism, which he called the internation and which Stiegler takes up this idea of the intonation. Um, what, what does it mean? For most, it meant some kind of uh, composition that, that does open out to a genuinely uh, global process, while at this, as opposed, because this is at the time of the collapse of the League of, of the formation of the League of Nations. And that was an open question at the time. What should the League of Nations be? Uh, and yet at the same time, recognizes as an anthropologist the necessity of, of maintaining that diversity of cultures that is embodied in nations. Of course, there are cultures within those nations as well. Um, for Stiegler, I think it does mean something like that, but it also means the necessity of a kind of um, counter-globalism process, which is to say that we can't just be international, but we can say um, we can plant the seeds of of a of another kind of globalization, and that is a question of doing something knowledgeable and reasonable and rational and desirable in that in that uh, in the unfolding of that process, and that was really his last project that he tried to do. Well, there's something else I was going to say about the question of education. It connects to what I'm saying. Uh, and at the higher level that you asked about before, but I didn't really say anything about apart from the 500 PhDs. The other aspect of that is that for Stiegler, um, this, the way in which we have introduced 
information technologies and net network technologies has had a destructive effect on higher education institutions in many ways and for many reasons, but can be summarized as saying that the faculty of computer science comes into the university and in some way wants to eliminate all the other faculties. Yeah. And, and so he'll talk about that what we need is a new arrangement of the faculties and functions of the university in order to, to prevent this uh, unfolding continuing any further and which this new arrangement will have to be transdisciplinary in a new way. So we'll have to involve all the faculties rethinking their, their premises and their um, methods in relation to one understanding that all of their disciplines uh, are always exosomatic processes with instruments and so on to how they're all affected by the way in which these new instruments of knowledge or information uh, operate in those faculties or on those faculties or against those faculties and um, and really means rethinking the basis and function of the university as a repository of the of the possibility of research and so on um, in light of of the exosomatic viewpoint that he's trying to put forward the connection between the university and being there for me personally but i know from a lot of people around me as well also part of the reason behind doing this podcast is that I don't feel fully at home anymore at the university. Um, so that's, I mean, that's also one of the reasons I quit. I'm going to work at another university of applied science, but it's, I mean, that's, it's a very different environment, but the university where I used to work, I had some issues around uh, academic freedom and social safety, uh, which were related to uh a discussion in the Netherlands that has to do with the role of the universities in particular in the relationship to activism. So we have, you have Extinction Rebellion in Australia? Yes. Yes. Not well, active, but yes. We have them here and what they do is they block um, a, a highway between the Ministry of Climate and the Ministry of Economics. Uh, they do that every few months, and their argumentation is that it's within and sight and sound and sight. So it's between, uh, like the government, the main government building, and the and the Ministry of Climate, and they block that road. It's an act of civil disobedience. Uh, but there are also many scientists participating. They're called scientist rebellion, and they're like climate scientists pasting their research papers to police vehicles. Um, so, and I actually haven't been part of that. I'm not part of any group. Um, but um, just touching that issue is very, very controversial. Uh, saying that because, okay, I, I worked at the medical institution and the organization of these medical institutions in the Netherlands has on their website uh, the 
the climate crisis is the greatest threat to public health of this moment. Um, but it doesn't receive, if you look around you, what's happening concretely in the university and in education and, and, and in uh, the education that the university provides to medical uh, students, it's there. <laughs> uh, yes, sustainability is important, but it's not even close to being the greatest threat to public health. So um, around these issues, it seems so this is like a place where I think the university has a societal responsibility and has to respond to society. Many have made the arguments that activism, that the university should actively support activism. Well, <laughs> that's a big problem if you say things like that. So those kind of issues uh, without yeah, going into particular, but just this environment just led me to a feeling of uh, not feeling at home and even getting burned out in the sense that I felt constantly unsafe and constantly tensed. So I couldn't relax anymore. I mean, that's I think has to do with burnout as well, being in such a conflict. So then that, yeah, one alternative would be to go if you want to do something uh, to respond to the climate crisis is to go outside of academia, which for instance, many climate scientists are doing. Uh, but preferably the university would also be a home for people who want to respond to so such issues in society. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I do now in this conversation, I connect it also to the being there. Um, that in the same way that they say, well, I don't feel at home in the Netherlands, I didn't feel at home at the university. But Stiegler, if he's saying, well, we one of the things we need most urgently is 50 PhDs, well, PhDs are in the university system. So I guess he does see a role for the university. Yes, uh, he definitely does. Uh, but at the same time, he's, you know, he sees the problems very deep. Yeah. Um, if we think about what you, if, if, leaving Stigler aside for a minute, let's think about the question, should the university take a position on an issue itself? Right? Um, in Australia, we're currently seeing that happen on one particular issue. In Australia, we have a indigenous population and currently there's a, a proposal for a referendum for something that will be called the voice, which will be a, a body outside of parliament that will have a kind of advisory role in relation to government that is voted on by the Aboriginal population and um, uh, won't have any direct power but will have the ability to advise. And it's composed of members of that population. And the universities are, it seems like they're deciding whether they should take a position in relation to the voice and are taking a position in favour of the voice. For myself, I'm in favour of it. 
uh, not because I have a strong belief that it will make a difference to to the Aboriginal community, but um, because I don't see any reasons to object to it. And so um, if if uh, other people think that it's worth a shot, then I'm, I'm not against having a shot. Um, so does that mean that I agree that the university should take a position? It does not. Why does it not? First, because we have to ask what is a university? And if you want to talk about uh, academic freedom, then what you mean is that the researchers are not bound by some particular position of the university. And so, which is to say, of or, the university or what is above the university? The yeah, state. Or, or a lack of position where the university says, well, you, for instance, if you would take, if the university wouldn't take, and they say, well, we don't take a position, but you as an, as an individual academic would take a position. And the university would say, well, you cannot do that. But you, you could say, well, I can because I have academic freedom. I'll get to that. So, But first we have to say the idea of the university taking a, a position itself yeah. is uh, something we always have to think about, not just when it's taking a position of, in something we agree with, but what it would mean if it was something we disagree with, in which case it could be very... Um, uh, problematic for our research. Yeah. So if if we think, well, the university should only take a position on things that it's so obvious that it should be for and every good person should be for it, then maybe we're not thinking hard enough about the risks of the university taking a position. Um, and more importantly, that it runs counter to the idea that in order for the university to be a there, it depends on having a kind of open space where it doesn't determine what positions are allowed to be taken. Now, I think we have to say the word position here is not a very good word because it's it sounds very one-dimensional, for or against something or other. When Really what we mean is uh, a view or like an opinion, in this, not an opinion in the sense of, well, it's just your opinion, but an opinion in the sense of what an opinion piece in a newspaper used to mean, which is a, a considered opinion on the basis of knowledge that I am respected for having enough to that I can write this authoritative opinion in the newspaper and others may agree or disagree, but they ag agree or disagree within a contest of interpretations. Yeah, that's what exactly, by the way, happened in, in my case. <laughs> yeah. Well, so then, does that mean that we're saying that we are in favour of uh, academic freedom without conditions, etc., etc. What what the, uh, Derrida called the university without conditions. Well, then we can think about the end of Technics and Time Four. The end of Technics and Time Four. Stiegler talks about Immanuel Kant, and Immanuel Kant was threatened with repression by the king. 
his response was to write The Conflict of the Faculties, which begins with that letter from the king. And what does he say in Conflict of the Faculties that gets Stiegler's attention? That the there are the higher faculties and the lower faculties. And the higher faculties are medicine, theology, and law. And why are they the higher faculties? They're the higher faculties because they are in a strong relationship with the state. And then there is the lower faculty. The lower faculty is philosophy. But at this time, philosophy is not really separate from science, from natural philosophy. They're the same sort of thing. But there is a greater distance from, from the state. And in that distance, Kant says, there is a margin of freedom. And on the basis of that margin of freedom, this conflict can lead to a new organization of the faculties of the university, the faculties of, of knowledge in this academic sense. What Stiegler wants to say is it's not a question of some kind of pure academic freedom or a university with no conditions whatsoever. Knowledge has its function. Research has its function. And that function is part of the state and bigger than the state. And the state can recognize that that function is both something smaller than the state and something that exceeds government, exceeds the state, exceeds it's on the scale of the planet or whatever. And yet it's not pure freedom. What Stiegler would say is well, this is precisely why the question is not just to resist these incursions on our freedom by a stupid university that has been made stupid because it doesn't conceive of itself as a place of open research but conceives of itself as a brand that needs protecting in the way that corporations protect their brands. That's the real problem. And uh, that this is why the university has to be reorganized in totality, not in the name of pure freedom, but in the name of um, recognizing the new functions for the university that are required today that can't be left to the to a market or to brands or to governments that see them as a question of brands and markets. Um, and at the same time, where research is, becomes more and more subject to all the problems of automation, information technologies, etc. So, in other words, it's another one of those cases where Stiegler would say, the point here is not to resist. Resistance doesn't give us any path here. We can resist 
this kind of university, but it, but in resisting it, we just ensure its continuation. What we have to do is invent a new kind of uh, relationship to research knowledge yeah. and research institutions. Because you were talking, uh, we shouldn't throw away all that stuff about automation. I mean, in terms of research, the university has a big role in automation, learning how to do read literature, learning how to read, how to all those kind of things that are, if you just say, well, I'm not going to be part of the university, I'm going to do it by myself. Yeah, <laughs> you miss a lot as well. Yes. And so when I say the point is not to resist, it doesn't mean that I'm saying we should not try things inside the university. We yeah. should try things inside the university, but those things have to be proposals with and proposals based on concepts that we have to push on the grounds that uh, if if the people that ran the university or the people that run the government or the people that run the corporations put that put the money in really sat down and thought about what is being proposed and the reasons why and the concepts with which those reasons are being explained, then they would want to agree as well because the force of the argument is uh, uh, strong and because they themselves already know that these problems have to be thought about and dealt with and taken care of. They already know it and they want to know it, but they also want to deny it. And we live in a world where um, the problems are so deep that it becomes impossible to deny them anymore. But at the same time, where they're so deep that we have to deny them more than ever. And when you have to deny something, when it's become impossible to deny it, then you go crazy and you start to behave in a crazy way. And we see that kind of madness rising everywhere. And Stiegler would say, this is what's going on. We cannot deny it anymore, which means we know it. But we need to deny it more than ever, which means we're going crazy. And so... We don't want to go crazy, but somebody has to show the possibility of an alternative. Yeah, and then so if we look at what Kant did, including a letter of the king in your book, that's courageous. It's taking yeah. a big risk, and 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 uh, apparently it's being successful uh, because I mean no one remembers the name of the king, and everybody knows Kant, right? <laughs> so I'm thinking about yeah, just also thinking about my own situation because I've been thinking about how is in my experience this idea of academic freedom related to uh, safety, social safety, I didn't feel safe anymore. Um, and I heard, I think it was John Cleese say something about creativity where he says, well, creativity, you need a kind of a foundation for safety where you can basically play because you can try different things. You can, that's also how I see research a lot. You have to try different things. It's not even about, 
I'm taking a position on this or this or this. That's what's happening a lot now about people speak about woke culture and whatever. They take a position in a debate. But for me, it wasn't so much about taking a position in a debate. It was about pointing to something and saying, well, um, uh, scientists who think their work they their work is so alarming that they block a road and and get arrested and know that they're going to get arrested and know that they're going to get in trouble they're courageous uh whatever you think about their position they're courageous and uh history history for sure will judge that they're right i mean they are on the side of science so for me, uh, climate activists engaging in these kind of behavior are the loudest voice of science, at least in the Netherlands. And then I would say the job of the university is to support this kind of courage. But it also sounds a little bit like what you are saying. It's like to convince somebody of an idea which you, you believe in this idea. You believe that if people just, you know, care to look at it, care to consider it they will be convinced that it's actually a good idea uh, but at the moment you're uh, proposing that uh, you know it takes courage to do that well um, yeah. i mean yeah. there's if if a university was a place of research and uh, uh, openness to the possibility of research being conducted whether it's uh, pure whether it's um totally free or conditionally free. The question is whether the research can go on and whether whether somebody's blocking the street or something, it's no different than than their private life. You know, they might have uh, three wives, you know, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. It doesn't affect the research. So if, if the university's concerned was its function then they wouldn't care about this issue yeah. this is why i say it's about their brand and marketing their brand, because right, yeah. the function is this the activity that they're that they're not accepting is irrelevant to the function of the university so it's in that respect it's more like a, a risk it doesn't even mean they disagree with the position but they say by putting yourself out there, by doing this, you're taking a risk because it might harm our reputation as a university. Doesn't mean we yes. disagree with uh, your position, but reputation? your position might. Yeah, exactly. That's a good question. Reputation is a marketing idea. Marketing, you know? yeah. Your brand, uh, your brand reputation. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because because if reputation meant. Um, the quality of the research or the quality of the teaching, then then um, it wouldn't depend on these yeah. factors. But we lose all of those. You know, in a way, it's it's the same as the as the teacher saying to the three year old, "This is not the same as your home." The dancing, the dancing floor is not the same as your room at home or your house where you can do whatever you want, jump all over the furniture, um, because there's a forgetting of the distinction between kinds of places, and that forgetting is the generalization of everything into marketing. 
well, at least the teacher is clear. They're saying, well, you're, you can't do this in the school. Many times the university is saying, well, actually, you can do it. But the moment you do it, you get, you get in trouble. Right, but the teacher is saying that because she has an idea of the function that she's, that she's taken care of. And the university isn't concerned about any functions. They're just concerned about appearances. And many dancing schools are only concerned about appearances as well because so, those dancing schools have been colonized yeah. by Mark. Speaking about the next generation, my, my six-year-old daughter is calling. She's asking me, what, uh, Papa, what are you doing? Yeah. What, what should I answer? <laughs> <laughs> You're just, just taking care of her future. All right. Okay. <laughs> right. Exactly. So people who got this far, they're clearly. I don't know if you can still hear me, but my screen just went blank. Yeah, uh, okay, this is my computer right now. My, my screen just went blank. <laughs> oh my God, so... Um, Maybe it's enough, but I hope it, because it still has to save the recording. So uh, that's the thing. So yeah, anyway, I'm going to try. I'll let you know. I'm going to try to resolve the recording and I hope that uh, Zoom made the backup.